Hey everybody, Pastor Gary here. Our cord is replaced and we should be good to go again. Sorry for the mishaps last week. Our new puppy is quite the chewer. Today, we're going to be continuing in our series, Don't Worry. And today's message is perhaps of all the concepts that Paul shares, the single most difficult for us to truly come to understand. Now look, when I'm done, we will all understand exactly what Paul says here in this passage. However, most of us will not fully know the meaning of the passage to the point that we are able to apply the concept to our life. The reason for this is that we live in a culture that defines identity by all those things that are good in a person's life or the things that attach value to a person in some way. So for instance, some of you identify me as Alyssa and Gabe's father. That identity is true. And it is an amazing thing as far as I'm concerned. Or you may identify me by my job at work. And that title takes various nuances, right? Some call me a PA or a process assistant. And then others like to jokingly call me the doc dad or the doc father. And when I hear people try to describe me to new associates and they say something like, Gary runs the doc, but he's like the doc dad. Those identities warm my heart. I'm also identified as Autumn's husband, or perhaps as Gary and Shirley's son. Those whom I live around know me as that guy who lives in the red house down the street, perhaps. None of these are necessarily evil. Many of them are truly good, and some are simply neutral. But here's the problem with these identities. Every single one of them will one day go away. Sometimes, children and spouses die far too young. Jobs are lost. When we allow the things of this world, no matter how good or right they may be, to identify us, we will experience anxiety. Over the next several weeks, we are going to look at redefining our lives so that when the troubles of these ages do come, we will stand firm in Christ Jesus. Let us read today's passage, Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Our battle against anxiety is ultimately found in how well we can find occasion to rejoice. Notice what I did not say. I did not say that we needed to find experiences in which we can find joy. I did not say that we need to make sure we only keep those friends around us who lift us up and make us joyful or happy. Times right now are difficult and stressful on most everyone. 
COVID is no joke. Some of us may joke in order to alleviate the stress and anxiety, but we all recognize that people, friends, and family are dying from this. So if you feel right now that you need to remove from your life those that are a bit of a downer or might not be doing their best to uplift you, and I have seen this idea passed around Facebook in various forms as a meme, well, I have a few words for you. You might need to stand up for this one, in fact. They don't need you as a friend if you are so self-centered that you are only worried about your own needs and not the needs of your friends. What kind of you a friend are you anyways? If you are going to cut out all of your friends who are not always positive, then you will positively find yourself alone. There is not a person in your circle of friends right now who is not worried or struggling with something in their lives. This is a constant reality for all of us because we all live in a fallen, sin-soaked world. Paul is writing a letter from the midst of a prison where he is struggling against the constant reality that today may be the day he draws his last breath. He knows that this church in Philippi that loves him dearly and has shown that love consistently is struggling because of his possible fate. And he writes, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul, in the midst of dire circumstances, is able to write a letter of encouragement to this small church. What is within Paul that causes him to be able to do such a thing? He is no superhuman. Paul is no different than you or I. But most of us would only be able to sit in that jail cell and most likely not have the strength to even eat. That's how far many of us would fall. What's different about Paul? I'm not going to let anyone tell me, well, he's just Paul. There was something special about Paul that isn't the same for the rest of us. Sorry, that is simply not true. There is something special about Paul, but the thing that makes Paul special is true for each and every one of us who are in Christ Jesus. In the next verse, Paul writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. First thing that is truly special about Paul is that he has no doubt that the prayers of the saints have the power to touch and move the creator of the heavens and the earth. God the Father hears the prayers of the saints and he moves into action on their behalf. That is something truly special to be able to lean on in times of anxiety. Paul also trusts that those whom he calls friend are praying for his constant needs. We as a church need to be continually praying for one another. We need to then rest Rest in the fact that others are praying for us and that those prayers will be effectual in the midst of whatever situation we find ourselves within. We as a congregation should be able to find rest in the comfort of those prayers. Do you believe that your relationship with God is so great that he hears your prayers? You need to. Because not only does he hear your prayers, but he chooses to answer them as well. That's how much God the Father loves you. Second, Paul says in this verse that the Holy Spirit has given him help. The moment you believe in faith in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within you. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is given the very moment a person believes in Jesus. The Holy Spirit then lives within you 
in order to empower you to bring glory to God the Father. We need to learn to lean on the presence of the Holy Spirit more and more in our lives. He is ever present to help us with anything that we face. Finally, in just this first verse, Paul says that he is certain that what has happened to him will only aid in his salvation. We need to be careful with this, right? Salvation itself is a big concept, and that has many steps within it. And we need to be careful to apply the proper understanding to what Paul is saying here. I believe that Paul is speaking of what we call sanctification, which is the process that all of us are in right now. That process in which the Holy Spirit within us helps us to reflect more and more the image of Jesus Christ to this needy, hurting world. If it is anything but this, then our ultimate salvation may be in doubt. And I am certain that this is not what Paul is speaking of. But rather, it is the fact that God the Father will purposely place us oftentimes in very difficult situations in order to prepare us for greater works of service. When you are in the midst of those situations, rest in the fact that your salvation is certain and that God is using this period of testing as a time to grow in your relationship with him. Look at what Paul is facing at this time. He has not only been imprisoned by the secular government for preaching the gospel of Jesus, but now Christian brothers and sisters are working to bring his downfall. I've never experienced the first, but I have the second. And there is no greater pain than the hurts inflicted by a brother. We are called to lift one another up in prayer, not tear one another down for our own purposes and plans. But even in those times, we need to see our, our identity not in those relationships, but in Christ and in Christ Jesus alone. We need to learn to rest in the prayers of the saints. We need to find our rest in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we need to find our rest in the power of Jesus, that he is at work in us, transforming us into his image. And that one day we will find ourselves face to face with our Savior. These are the truths in which we need to rest and find our identity. Just think how far rest itself, rest goes to combat anxiety. In verse 20, Paul writes, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Regardless of what the coming days may hold for Paul, he will stand trial. And when he stands before these men, he will proclaim the gospel of Jesus in order to bring him glory. And no matter the verdict that may come from that proclamation, whether they release him or put him to death, his ultimate goal in life is to glorify the name of Jesus in whatever life remains for him. When we make Jesus the very center of our lives, anxiety will be destroyed. And it will not be destroyed by a 12-step program, but rather by the very power of God Most High. When Jesus is the center of our lives, the Holy Spirit within us will become joy-filled, and that joy will overflow from Him into our lives, and we will know peace and rest and joy in those turbulent times. Jesus must become our very identity, Jesus and Jesus alone. And then, 
Paul gives the most poignant of statements, one that we must all wrestle with, one that we must all somehow come to terms with, one that the Western mind will find at first repulsive in time, and in time most likely nonsense, because the Western mindset is to live as long as possible. Paul does not hold this same view. He states in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do we see this life as fully dedicated to Christ Jesus? We should. We need to. It is for us the greatest combat against anxiety. Second, and most difficult, do we see death as something dreadful, something final? We may say no, but typically humans don't truly think or live as such. Even Christians who believe in an eternal afterlife to be lived out face-to-face with their Savior, most Christians fear death. They don't see death as the greater gain, but we should. If you look around your life and you say things like, but my kids still need me, my spouse still needs me, I still need to fill in the blank, I have this left undone, whatever it may be, do you not trust God enough to care for your family and friends? When we can get to a point when we completely trust God with our lives, and I mean every aspect of our lives, not only our own physical and spiritual being, then and only then can we come to a point that we can say that to die is gain. Paul goes on to explain further, and he writes in verse 22, he says, If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Paul says that if he continues to live, then that is wonderful. It means that he gets to preach Christ all the more. And there could be no greater endeavor for Paul. But what path will be taken? At present, he does not know. But he is being very honest that right now he stands at a fork in the road with one path leading to his release from prison and life, the other path leading to his death. Then, in verse 23, Paul explains this struggle he has between the two paths that he stands before. He writes, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. His heart's greatest desire is to look into the eyes of his Savior, to feel the sweet embrace of Christ, to finally experience Jesus' full righteous present and the weight and finality of sin gone eternally. To know Christ in a way we cannot fully know here and now. Paul says that that is by far better than to live. We need to be careful with Paul's words. He is not depressed and suicidal. He is being honest about his deepest desires to see the very face of his God. There is no greater desire a Christian can ever attain to than to stand face to face with their Savior, to look upon Christ. I yearn for that day. I long for that day more than anything I have ever desired to simply touch the hem of his cloak. How truly amazing that day will one day be. Paul then writes in verse 24, he says, But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. But he is certain that God is not done working through him, and that there are more works that he has for him. And it would appear that some of those are in relation to the church in Philippi. Or perhaps God intends for Paul's deliverance from prison to be a sign to the church in Philippi. Then in verse 25, Paul writes, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul is convinced, and who knows how or why he is convinced of this. He doesn't expressly say, So I don't want to claim something that cannot be proven. It may have been through special revelation from God, or may simply be wisdom that God has placed within Paul through the presence of the Spirit, that his work is not yet completed. How Paul knows isn't what's important, but it's something we all like to ask about and would love to know. What is important is that Paul is unwavering in his mission. He will continue with the church in Philippi so that he might be used by God in their growth in Jesus Christ and their ever-expanding joy in the faith. No one's position within the church is a bench warmer. All of us have been given gifts of the Spirit, which are to be used for the uplifting encouragement of the church. This is one of the reasons it is so important to be an active member of a church. God wants to work in you and through you to see others experience Him. This is how He works. Whatever job or role or whatever you want to call it that God has given you within the church, you need to begin to walk that out. When you do, you will find your greatest joy, and your joy will overflow from your life into the lives of the church body all around you. You have been blessed to be a blessing. And when we walk out that blessing, it is as though we are trampling underfoot any anxiety that may attempt to come against us. When we are a part of a church where the congregation is actively walking out each and every one of their callings, the church will become an instrument of grace in the hands of our Redeemer as a means to destroy anxiety. Paul concludes in verse 26 with this sentiment, and he writes, So that through my being with you, again your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Paul knows that when Christ delivers him from the hands of his accusers, he will be able to physically return to the church in Philippi, and his return will be an occasion of joyous celebration. They will, as a congregation, be able to celebrate all that Christ Jesus has done in and through this small church and in and through Paul. I believe that God loves times of celebration. Throughout the Old Testament, God ordained feasts for celebration. The New Testament only ordains one time of celebration, and that is communion. We are not given a specific schedule that we are to follow like the Old Testament feasts had. However, the picture of communion that we are given biblically is very different than what we as the church typically engage in. Communion would have resembled much more an Old Testament feast than what we practice today. A little wafer and the smallest possible cup of juice is not what was intended. Communion is meant to be a foreshadowing of the wedding feast of the Lamb. When Jesus returns and recreates the earth as it was meant to be without sin, we will sit with him and dine with him at the greatest feast ever prepared. And communion is meant to be a foreshadow of that. Unfortunately, oftentimes, communion is a time of depressive, solemn introspection, a looking back at all the bad things I did in order to restore order to my relationship with Jesus, none of which is biblically present. The early church gathered in celebration of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as a foreshadowing of what was soon to come. We need to recover this somehow in our churches today. When we do, We will begin to create an environment within our church that is naturally celebratory. An environment where we seek to celebrate even the little things in life. This shift in perspective will begin to be a massive hammer that the church can and should wield against anxiety in the midst of the body. 
It's difficult to be anxious when surrounded by people who are celebrating Jesus and joyously looking forward toward his return. So what? What does all this mean? What does it all do? So what? There are many lessons to be learned from this passage. How different do you think your life would be if you prayed regularly for those around you? How different do you think your life would be if you knew that there were people around you right now praying for you? How different do you think your life would be if you had no doubt that those prayers touched the very heart of God so deeply that he was moved to action on your behalf? Would you pray more? Would you ask more often for prayer? One of the problems with our self-centered approaches to life is we either ask people to pray for everything in our lives or we ask for nothing. There's little in the middle. You need to figure out who you are and fix it. Which of those do you tend to be? Begin to rest securely in the prayers of the saints. How different would your life be if you felt like you were walking every day and every moment in both the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, you are. You may struggle with that mental picture or fully understand that truth. That's okay. It's oftentimes not easily understood, un easily understood because it can and does oftentimes take so many different forms. But you need to pray daily that God make you aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit and that he would empower you to bring glory to Jesus. We need to also be praying that for all of those around us. And then we can and we will find rest in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And we will experience his joy as he brings glory to Jesus through our lives. How different would your life be if you began to look at life and death as Paul does? What would you have done differently already this morning if Christ were the center of your life? If Christ were the most important thing in your life, if you lived every moment for Christ and Christ alone, you can do that and not be in ministry full-time, right? You can do that no matter where you find yourself today or tomorrow. Death is the hardest of the two to grapple with. There's a saying out there that you can be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. That is simply not true. All of our hopes and dreams should be looking forward to the day that we stand before Jesus. That day when every tear is wiped away, when every pain, every illness, every disease is healed. That is the end goal of this race in which we find ourselves called life. Do we yearn for that day? Do we long to see Jesus? We all need to begin to wrestle with this idea and allow the Holy Spirit within us to begin to shape us more and more that we might see the truth that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Finally, how different would your life be if you were actively involved within a church that was joyously seeking to make much of Jesus and less of ourselves? How far do you believe God wants to go to destroy, to destroy your anxiety right here, right now? I believe the answer to that question is as far as it takes. That doesn't mean that God is going to simply get rid of the source of the anxiety, but rather God wants to replace your anxiety with joyous celebration. Find your rest in that truth and watch the amazing works that God can 
and will accomplish through your life. Amen. Amen. Now, may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and he, may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed this day, to be a blessing every day this week. Have a great day, and may God bless you deeply and richly. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.